Welcome to Greystone Conversations, the podcast of Greystone Theological Institute. We invite you to join us as we explore brief scripture and theology studies, share interviews, discuss texts old and new, and listen in on Greystone special lecture events and selections from full Greystone course modules. We're delighted that you're with us today. Thank you for your support of Greystone Theological Institute. And once again, welcome. In our day, while biblical and theological studies certainly continue to abound and to flow from the presses, questions about the traditional Christian understanding of the atonement are not primarily focused on the question, is it biblical? Nor are they focused on whether it is theologically coherent. Instead, they are driven by a concern that it may be violent. And whether that is or is not biblical or theologically coherent is less important than the fact that this would be unacceptable. Why? Because a bloody atonement allegedly funds or leads to bloody behavior, to various forms of evil conduct. But does it? Would a theoretically bloodless atonement really be better? Good day to you. I'm Mark Garcia, President and Fellow in Scripture and Theology at Greystone Theological Institute, and I'm very pleased to welcome you today to episode number 68 of Greystone Conversations. I'm very pleased today to talk with Dr. Benjamin Burkholder, a Fellow in Scripture and Theology at Greystone, who also serves North Park Church in Wexford, Pennsylvania, near Pittsburgh. Dr. Burkholder has written about the attraction of a bloodless atonement in modern theology and biblical studies, but also has a pastoral interest in its powerful role in contemporary Christian and general culture. And Dr. Burkholder will soon teach a full course on this very topic this coming spring of 2024 for Greystone, beginning in early February. And as I note in today's conversation, we are making this class available at no cost at all to all Greystone members as a benefit of your membership. You're going to enjoy today's conversation, I suspect. But before we hear from Dr. Burkholder, let me also thank you once again for spending some time with Greystone today to reflect together on the shape and direction of greater faithfulness to our triune God. Your prayers, your support, your partnership truly mean a great deal to us and to the many we are honored to serve. And now, episode 68 with Dr. Benjamin Burkholder, Greystone Conversations. Ben, it's great to see you again and to talk with you again. And I've been looking forward to our conversation for quite some time. In fact, uh, the subject matter uh, of our conversation today is something you and I have talked about for years, as your work in this area dates back to uh, really when we were first getting to know each other and God's providence. And you had just recently come through some serious work on the atonement. And even then, I was learning so much from your work, and I continue to learn from it. I go back to it from time to time, and I've commended it to others. And I'm excited, finally, to be able to talk about it today, not just as something you have done, but also something we can look forward to in an imminent uh, full Greystone course that you'll be teaching on matters related to the atonement. So, I've I've been looking forward to our conversation for some time. Ben, very warm welcome to you to Greystone Conversations. Great to have you here today. All right. Well, thank you, Mark. Appreciate having this time with you. Thank you, Ben. And before we get into the book and the topic of the atonement and the class that we are looking forward to, and uh, we're going to do so by thinking particularly about a rather timely concern and question about the relationship between models of the atonement and, well, we could call it the very various forms of bad behavior, to put it mildly, that we do find in the church, including some just theological problems, and explore whether there is, in fact, a necessary relationship between someone's model of the atonement and other things that they may teach or things that they may do especially things that we wish they would not do and we believe are biblically um, illicit and, and unfaithful. Mm-hmm. But before we get there, Ben, tell us a little bit about what you've been up to lately, what your service to the church has looked like recently and what it looks like presently. 
For the past over half decade, it's been my pleasure to serve North Park Church as an associate pastor. And part of those responsibilities are things like adult education. So teaching Sunday school, filling in the pulpit when the senior pastor was out, missions, care groups, all kinds of things like that. And so that's been part of my my care for the church. And I've been able to take some of the stuff I've been working on academically and and teach it obviously at a different level. It's not quite the academic level, but still I, I love my church for the sense that they love to hear these conversations and have them and, and talk about how their faith matters with these, these even the critical voices out there. How, how do they respond to that? So they love to, to do that. In addition, I also teach philosophy at La Roche University and I view that as my mission field that I get to go in and Christians, non-Christians, they're all there and we get to talk whether God exists. So I always love the fact that I get people that have to be there that want to pass the course and I get to talk to them about the things I care about as well. And so those are the ways I've been serving the Lord as well as doing the academic research and writing on the side. Wonderful. Yeah, there's nothing like a trapped audience that can't leave and they have to they have to take what you're giving, especially mm-hmm. in a context like that. <laughs> right, right. Um, well, I, I really am so pleased to hear of the pastoral dimension of your work uh, in a discipleship context when it comes to helping Christians think through difficult matters, think difficult questions, and kind of pastorally guide them. That is, in fact, one of my, one of my goals for our conversation, that uh, as we talk through the issues, eventually I want to ask you, what difference does this make pastorally in helping Christians who maybe never read Rene Girard and others, mm-hmm. um, but who may struggle somewhat with what they think the church is saying and teaching and preaching as it does on the atonement and problems that they, in fact, truly do see in the visible church generally and maybe even in their own context or their experience and how they might be tempted to connect them, and and what pastorally uh, we might do to be of service to them. So we, we want to get there, but to get there properly, I'd, I'd like to start us by um, just uh, for a bit talking a bit about your your book. This is the monograph you wrote uh, as a result of your PhD research. It's called Bloodless Atonement, which. Uh, we want to uh, kind of keep in front of us as a theme for our conversation today, whether a bloodless atonement is better than, say, a bloody or bloodful atonement um, and avoiding certain societal or other relational ills. Bloodless atonement, it's subtitled The Theological and Exegetical Study of the Last Supper Saints. And this was published in 2017. It's still available. Friends, if you do not yet have a copy of Ben's book, um, I'll let you pause this and go and, and track it down and hit the, the order button and then come back and finish the episode. It really is uh, a helpful and edifying work, and it'll be related to things that we talk about in today's episode. In short, your question in the book is about the development in recent decades of many theologians, maybe surprisingly to many people, Um, saying that, in fact, the Messiah did not have to die with respect to paying for his people's sins, or there's no strong relationship between his death and remission of sins in the traditionally strong way that that has been understood. Mm -hmm. And you have a special interest in René Girard. He's uh, interesting here because he goes quite far down this path to... Uh, in fact, claim that characterizing the cross as an atoning sacrifice, in fact, undermines the gospel in certain ways. It reminds me of, frankly, a very foolish and reckless and destructive um, way of speaking that was found among certain British evangelicals years ago who characterized God the Father as uh, the divine child abuser on the terms of the traditional doctrine uh, of the atonement. So this is obviously, uh, maybe at first glance, a very academic question, and yet it very, very quickly and very easily becomes um, not merely academic. But this, this really does have to do with certain of the vitals of the gospel and of the church's confession of faith and confession of Christ and even understanding of who Christ is and what he has come to do. Um, could you walk us through how you got to this project? What what prompted your interest in this theme? 
uh, that resulted in this book? Yes, the, the story is quite a long one. And I'll say it starts off that I came to Duquesne and I had an idea for a dissertation in my mind. Once I got on site, met the faculty that would have to advise me, I realized that that was not going to be a viable project. And so I was quickly searching, like, what's the other interesting project in my mind? And really what I was fascinated by, at least a question that was still in my mind from pre-seminary days, was um, one that came from N.T. Wright. I, I read his book, Jesus and the Victory of God. And he talked about Jesus being the, the Savior who's the, the return from exile. And I sat there and thought when I read that, like, well, if, if I understand the New Testament as this return from exile, the restoration of Israel, how does that change my understanding of what Jesus Christ is doing on the cross and resurrection? I didn't really think right fully walk that out, but that paradigm shift of the return from exile is the hope that the gospels answer to, and they point to Jesus as the answer. I started wondering what, if, what if we dug in a little more and understood the cross through that lens? Like how does that change things? And so I started going down that path. I was working with the new Testament um, specialist at Duquesne and I really started honing in on the last supper saying that's why the, the book really focuses in on those. And he, he said, well, who's talking about sacrifice? And instantly my mind went to Rene Girard, not because I had an affinity for his theology, but just because, well, he seemed to be, I consider the grandfather of the nonviolent side. Like he's saying sacrifice is this leftover, you know, pent up expression of our desires for each other and we get rid of it. And the cross is actually deconstructing all of that. And so I just said, well, it looks like Rene Girard's going to be the conversation partner for this, even though we're coming at it from two different views. And from there, it was a matter of, of doing the hard work of the project, of understanding Girard, his work, the implications of it, and then teasing out and, and supporting. I ended up very much closely mirroring Wright's reading of the Old Testament, New Testament. How does this exilic theme really run the gamut? And then once once you set up that way, I think you've already got some answers to questions like what's sin? What's the problem with it? So if you take the exilic themes, you've got sin being this thing that causes distance between us and God, you know, the Garden of Eden, right? So sin happens, God casts out Adam and Eve, and here's Israel. They've broken the covenant. They're cast out of the land of promise. And so there's this abandonment to the foreign powers in the case of the exile over to Babylon and Assyria. And then if Jesus is still continuing that, and I think that's part of what's unique about right is saying, yeah, there was a return, but the full return hasn't really happened. And so if Christ is the fullness of that return and that restoration, then what's he doing? And there's just some really interesting things that popped out of the gospels that I hadn't known before. Like he's going to be handed over to the hands of the Gentiles. And so all these things like, like, Oh, that sounds a little more like exile than I'd ever seen before. And so suddenly the predictions of the cross sound a bit more like Christ is actually going into the exile punishments with his people and going to take him on the cross. So that set up things for me and got the project moving. And so it was a matter of just kind of walking through that research and tracing it out and then making my case for my, my thesis there, which was that Christ does, in fact, view his death as a sacrifice of atonement. And one of the assertions from Girard that gets repeated is that initially he's against using any kind of sacrificial language for the cross. Then he adopts it, says, well, you can have a sacrifice as long as it's exposing sacrifice, right? The, the idea that there's a deity that's angry and you appease it by offering an innocent victim or that society needs innocent victims to keep social cohesion together. And so he says, well, Christ can be that sacrifice as long as it's exposing all of that. He, he doesn't have to do that. He's offering himself willingly. That's the version of sacrifice that he's willing to accept. With the Last Supper sayings, I do make the case that Christ sees his death as a covenant sacrifice of the new covenant that then brings forgiveness to his people. And so seeing Israel as exile, as in exile, as under the curse of sin, under the curse of the covenant, and then Christ offering forgiveness through taking on that same punishment, exile to death, I see Christ still affirming that very mode and mechanism for the atonement. So Gerard and I end up taking different views on that. And I think what's what's interesting is why, and the reason why I honed in on the Last Supper sayings 
It's because Christ is the one who says those words. It's not a later reflection. It's not an apostle reflecting back. It's Christ saying, I'm doing this. You know, here's my body. Here's my blood. And here's what my blood's going to do. And in Matthew, it's for the remission of sins. Luke and 1 Corinthians, it's the new, blood of the new covenant. So both of those have the idea that this is the forgiveness. This is the basis of the new relationship between God and his people on the basis of Christ's death on the cross. And so that's why I focus there. And I think why it's an important linchpin in Gerard's whole argument that either brings the house of cards down, or if it's not, Christ didn't say, then we, we got a problem. But I'm saying, look, these are authentic. Even historical Jesus scholars say, look, he said something along these lines. Like you, th- this has got multiple attestation. Um, all, all these different qualifications follow with these passages. So I find it compelling. And I think it really does push me towards the view of the cross more along the lines of the reformed tradition that sees Christ as our substitute on our behalf. Oh, it's really helpful. And you mentioned quite a bit in the book about how this is not just a sacrifice question, but a covenant renewal mm-hmm. situation or context for the sacrifice. So it's not sacrifice in the abstract as a detached kind of action, um, but something that has the meaning it does within this overall covenant renewal environment. That's really interesting. Um, Greystone does does talk quite a bit about uh, the Eucharist or the Lord's Supper in a variety of context classes and and other contexts, and it, it matters uh, quite a bit in terms of Greystone's overall uh, overall model and vision. And uh, what you're doing in this book, I think, just enriches our appreciation of what what the this sacrament at the heart of the regular uh, life of the church, in fact, is communicating about the Christ of the gospel. Um, and I wondered if you could maybe unpack a little more in what way the bread and the wine, Passover symbols, and elements of the supper are taken up by Jesus to explain his death. When you're doing this in the book, how is it exactly we should understand what Jesus is doing in these Last Supper sayings with respect to these two elements that advances advances the case here? Mm-hmm. So there's some interesting things about this. If it's a Passover meal, which I I do take it to be that, there would have been a lamb there. And it's interesting, he doesn't pick the lamb. I think there's a lot of, lot of scholars who find it interesting. Well, why not just take that? And part of the reason that's very fascinating to me is that the Passover lamb was not, at least in my understanding, taken to be atoning in the sense that it, it didn't, it, it did protect the people, but it was more of a communal feast of remembering and so the fact he doesn't use the, the lamb, I think is significant. But he takes these other elements of the meal, the, the bread and the wine that would have been there, and then symbolically uses them to talk about his body. And I think that the, the breaking of the bread is my understanding that it's a symbolic demonstration of what's going to happen to his body. It's going to break. And so it's going to be this crumbling, this, this crushing that's going to happen to his body. And then... You have you have the wine, and it's words of the wine that I, I think are the most instructive for us because he's got the most expansive definition on there. And he talks about it being for you, and then also that's going to be, this is the blood, blood of the covenant. So what I find there, the Greek on that matches the Greek text of the Septuagint in Exodus 24.8. In Exodus 24.8, it's when Moses is dipping the branch into the blood and he's sprinkling over the people. And by that they're affirming, yes, we're Yahweh's people. And so it's this idea of confirming the covenant. Now I do argue in the book that if you read just Exodus 24, the sacrifice for the covenant didn't seem to have any clear atoning value to it. Although interestingly, the Targums do later impute that to it. And so whether it's that this idea of sacrifice, they all like, end up taking on the power of atonement. By the time the Targums are written, there is that value imputed into the the covenant sacrifice. And so I argue that that probably was contemporary. And at least, and this is where my director did say I had probably the most innovative move here in my book, that I had the book of Hebrews, where the covenant sacrifice, as it shows up in Hebrews, is atoning as well. And that therefore, you'd see Hebrews as a reflection of Jewish thought about the covenant sacrifice as a corresponding kind of layer 
in the New Testament era of corroborating this idea that, that the covenant sacrifice did have this power to atone for sin. And I think it comes through, whether you follow the Mark Matthew reading, which is, you know, Matthew adds, this is, you know, my blood, which is for the remission of sins. And then you've got the Luke Paul version, which is the new covenant. And the new covenant in, the, in the Jeremiah 33 was for the forgiveness of sins, that God would remember their sins no more. And so whether whether you take Mark Matthew reading or the Luke Paul, I think you're both led back towards this fact that this is the blood is going to wash away sin. It's going to it's going to cleanse it. It's going to expiate and propitiate it. And so it's going to be gone. And so I think that's the value that Christ is then saying, here's here's what my body, my blood is going to do for for you. And, he, and he's saying it's for his disciples, it's not just like, hey, this is something you should think about. It's like this is going to benefit you. So the who pair language in there is in the Greek, the, the on behalf of idea. That's really important, I think, too, throughout the whole set of sayings. That's really helpful. Now, this is all, um, in other words, rather violent imagery. And that is at the same time mm-hmm. uh, a reason an increasing number of theologians and Christians generally are at least uncomfortable uh, with this understanding of the atonement and therefore also of the Eucharist or the Supper. Um, and others are not just uncomfortable, but are outright denying it and concerned that there's a necessary relationship between this kind of violent atonement, bloody atonement, and various forms of societal or domestic or or churchly uh, evils and, and ills. Um, could you walk us through what you have discovered in the academic literature about the reasons uh, a bloodless atonement, to use the title of, of your monograph, has increasingly proven so attractive in our time? And, and we don't want to suggest that there are um, that we know motives um, beyond what motives are actually provided in, in the literature. And that that's something that we, in fact, we do have a lot of. Um, we also don't want to suggest that it's not that um, they are necessarily reaching these conclusions for reasons other than what they are persuaded they see in the text and in scripture. So we want to, we want to grant all of that, but we also want to account for the fact that they do often tell us in the literature, this is why we are concerned about this violence. It seems to glorify violence uh, and therefore provide a warrant for ongoing mm-hmm. violence. And we're also concerned, they say unmistakably, uh, what this will lead to and what this will fund in terms of ongoing um, violent behavior. Could you give us some insight into what you've discovered in the literature like this? Let me read you a quote right here. This is from J. Denny Weaver, who's an Anabaptist. He wrote a book, The Nonviolent God and also The Nonviolent Atonement. So he's got two books on this very theme. Here, here's a quote from him. He says, quote, does it surprise that through the centuries, people claiming a God of this stripe, and that, I'm just going to pause here and say this is the, the violent stripe, the, the God who can impose punishment, who will require death. Continuing with his words, with violence, an intrinsic element of divine working might end up justifying violence under a variety of divinely anchored claims and images. Might become comfortable with a violence-based system of criminal justice and positive images of war in everyday society and might enjoy violence and entertainment, whether in cartoons, adult movies, or sports, end quote. And so right there, you hear the connection between here, here's this God who acts violently at the cross. Like he's going to require this. If it's going to be necessary, then it seems like this has these bad social outcomes. And you think of today of mass shootings, you can think of all, all these different things that we've got, um, hierarchy abusing their parishioners that, are problematic. And so if if you have this divine sanction for these kinds of actions, then it seems like, well, hey, if God does it, what's to stop me from doing that? And so I see where people go with this and why they can find it problematic. And, I, and I've heard people in, in common discourse, well, look at the Old Testament. God told them to cast out the, the foreigners or have these wars. We should do the same. And so instantly it becomes like, well, if I have divine sanction for this. I can go and do that in my private life or in our international sphere, wherever I, I can act the same way. So I, I get the concern. 
Um, what I've done in my work is try to actually break the, ca- the causation piece. So it's one thing to say these are sometimes correlative, that you have this divine view of God, and therefore I'm justified in perpetrating violence against others. I've tried to, to break that causal link. And I, one of my recent articles in Modern Theology was on Dietrich Bonhoeffer for this. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer has a penal substitutionary view of the atonement. He's, he's like, hey, look, God does not soft on sin. He's got to punish it. Boom. He's, he's very strong on the Lutheran sense on that in that regard. And what's interesting for me regarding Bonhoeffer, if you know anything about his personal life and also his his ministry, he was a strong advocate for nonviolence. As, as like he would walk that line. Now, I, I, there's some out there who would say he was a pacifist. I don't believe that line of argument, but he he was definitely mesmerized by Gandhi and Gandhi's ability to lead a revolution through nonviolence and trying to see how could he do that in the midst of Nazi Germany. And so he was trying to apply some of these, how do you use the church to speak out to society and do that without resorting to violence, not just taking up arms and by opposing in them. And so in that article, I just tried to make the case, look, Bonhoeffer's a person where he's got this view of God, but then he also endorses this nonviolent resistance that also seems to be the way that people like Jenny Weaver in fact, argue that we should um, try to change society that way. And so it's interesting that he has the same ethical outcome or action with a completely different theology of the cross than J.D. Weaver. And yet I I say Bonhoeffer would be similar in how he encourages people to act in society and to try to bring the kingdom to bear, not through force. And as Bonhoeffer actually did, that he died for some of his actions. Now, he was I do deal with the fact that he was trying to assassinate Hitler or at least be a part of a plot to assassinate Hitler. So that's an interesting qualification there. But I don't think there's a causative link from just because you have this view of the atonement, what God has to do to sin, that therefore my actions to conquer sin, to oppose it, are therefore justified. And I think there's a humility requirement in there somewhere to realize that I am not God. I do not sit in God's seat. And then I think the other piece that I would want to add here is, is that everyone who's wanting to oppose violence, and, and I listen, I want to oppose violence too. I, we think I think part of what made this view much more attractive post 9-11, we became a lot more sensitive to religiously motivated violence. And so we see it from a different religion perpetrated on our shores, but then we also see like, well, how how do Christians justify their violence. And so you can see how people get here being so concerned about it. But we all want justice, right? We all want justice for the victims. And if God does not bring justice against sin, against the oppression in the world, then there is there is no final word for the victims. The victims are just always going to be victims. And so I think on the flip side is a walk that path to say, okay, if you want a God that doesn't really ever judge he doesn't say these are people are in and these people are out. This action's right. This action's wrong. Then there is, then then might makes right in this on this sphere. And we're just talking about what happens here. There, if there is no end time justice, and usually, I'm always interested in where okay, if Christ is not, if he's not the representation of God's judgment on sin, in our world, is there one later? And oftentimes, I'm seeing people get really wishy-washy about what happens eschatologically. Does God have a kind of an open grace for the future, or, or is there still a judgment on sin? And I find it interesting that a lot of times when people want to protect victims, and I would I would as well, that it ends up removing any ability from God, who is the only one who has omniscience to actually judge correctly. It removes his ability to actually judge. And I think if if anything in our world— we need someone more powerful than the Putins and the Hamas's of our world. We need someone who can speak in and say, this is wrong. And it's going to hold them accountable because we, we lack that in our world. I always want to ask, well, what's, what's the end result of this way of thinking? So what's the end result of saying God does not need to judge sin? Is at the end of the day, and this is, forget whose words these are. These are not mine. But at the end of the day, you let in the devil. That God ultimately cannot cast the devil out into exile. He's got to bring him into. And 
I think that's that's a liability. If evil and good can now no longer have a dividing line, then we've got a moral problem on our hands. And so I find that problematic as well. If, if we back up the truck and say, where does this actually go? That seems theologically problematic and devastating, just even thinking about ethically and morally, what are the implications long-term? That's helpful. And it, it prompts the thought of how important it is for us to be very careful in connecting an idea, a doctrine, with certain behaviors, with a straight line that's very neat and very simple. And it, the reality is far more complicated than that. And I, I think in humility, we need to be quick to say this is also true for doctrines that we reject, that we think are wrong, that you know, we were talking in, in our conversation today about a doctrine that we want to defend and commend mm -hmm. in terms of the atonement. But there are there are bad theological positions, erroneous theological positions, that we are we are pressured by some to uh, connect directly to other evils or ills and say this bad idea is resulting in this bad behavior and we all know this is the bad idea and we all know that's bad behavior so we should draw the straight line when in fact we need to be extremely careful about that mm -hmm. um, in charity but also with a due sense of the complicated nature of that relationship in in the graystone context uh in our lydia center for women and families we have been focused for, for years from the beginning on the very dark, sad, tragic, and uh, infuriating realities of spousal abuse, child abuse, domestic violence, mm -hmm. related matters, models and, and uh, practices with respect to gender relationships and so on that are not merely mistaken, but wildly contrary to what scripture teaches and calls us to. And from time to time, we have been pressured to say that there's a necessary relationship between things like uh, the eternal subordination of the sun idea in Trinitarian theology, which we reject, and we have material that teaches against it. But to draw a straight line from that erroneous mm -hmm. position uh, to the bad behavior when it comes to gender and spousal relations when in fact that relationship is actually quite complicated. And it's not to deny that there is in fact a relationship between those two, those two realities in some contexts, in some cases. In fact, we can find examples of people on their websites for their churches or their organizations parading the relationship mm -hmm. between their doctrine of the Trinity and how the men and women treat each other and relate to each other in their churches. Um, so we're not suggesting there isn't a relationship and that it really holds in some cases, but we need to be very careful before jumping to the conclusion that there's a necessary relationship between the two. Unfortunately, um, that kind of naive um, simplicity about the relationship can bring its own uh, violent consequences mm -hmm. out for those mm -hmm. who are innocent of the charges or have not in fact been guilty of the behavior though they have been guilty of the erroneous theology mm -hmm. in in point of fact um while it has been suggested oh but there's so much documentation of this relationship not when you get right down to it and look for it um you're having to make a lot of assumptions in order to interpret the documentation that way um instead what we find is documentation of both realities and that is that people with the bad theological idea can strangely, perhaps, but still undeniably be very loving and godly husbands and fathers or brothers or uh, wives or mothers or sisters, as the case may be. And those with great theologies of gender and of the Trinity can also be among the most impossible and destructive of men and women. Um, and the, the the solution is not as simple as change out, you know, your your patriarchy for egalitarianism, or change out your complementarianism for egalitarianism. And we are not patriarchal uh, at Greystone, and 
while we appreciate some things about what people are saying on, on all in all of these areas, we're not uh, easily pigeonholed into in those things. And you can listen to our resources to see why. Um, but it's simply not as straightforward as that. Some of the most loving and godly men and women I have known have had bad theologies of gender. Um, and some of the most destructive men and women that I know uh, have paraded uh, what they think of as a very liberating theology of gender, when in fact it is uh, just a, a different form of slavery and a very destructive one, and, and ironically, a violent one, um, but in its own way. So we want to be very careful, I think, in how we relate these things together without denying that there is a relationship and there can be one uh, where the relation, where that tie is stronger rather than weaker or more direct rather than indirect. Uh, and that prompts my appreciation for what you're going to be doing in our upcoming class, Ben. Uh, if I could just read the course description for us and, and invite you to tell us what, what else this course will be about and what you, what you plan to do with it. I think it could be helpful to our, to our audience. Yes, Ben. Can I make one comment about that oh, before yes, we move into that? Everything Certainly. you just said, I, I think it's really interesting in the modern context and in discourse. I consider it to be the consequentialist evaluation of theology, right? Sure. So if this idea breeds this effect, so you're talking about subordination of the son leads to subjugation of women. Right. The value of a theological idea is now based, being based almost solely on its consequence, it seems to me we need a much more robust foundation for how we assess the, theological ideas. And I think if if you come from a perspective where there's revelation, God's revealing himself, he's revealed himself in his word, that faithfulness to the witnesses, um, coherence to the ideas, all, all of that should play a part of our assessment. That consequentialism is, is a piece of that. I, I want to be honest about how our ideas are affecting the real world, that the kingdom should be bringing life. But I don't think it should be, you know— hung solely on the hook of consequentialism of how, how well our ideas are doing and therefore good theology and bad theology is based upon its social effect. Yes, indeed. And it reminds me of a, of a problem we have had in, I would say, especially have had in reform context where um, for any number of, of perhaps understandable reasons, um, the messaging has been, for those coming up and into the Reformed faith, especially from outside, that what they really need for a faithful Christian life is better theology. Mm. And if we if we get enough of the good ideas pumped into our brains and we understand them and embrace them, there's this inevitable output we oh, call yeah, yeah, yeah. A, yeah. a healthy, warm Christian life that is faithful. We, we are functional Cartesians in, in many respects along these lines, and we at least are, are privileging in a in a deformed way, the intellect and the intellectual aspect of who we are at the expense of our being whole persons, mm -hmm. at the expense of the biblical world in which we learn by doing as well as do because we are learning. And that there is no, in fact, automatic relationship, just get your ideas right and there's this practical output. But we sometimes give that message, maybe unintentionally, uh, to our friends, our brothers and sisters in Christ, by always having a theological formula answer to real life Christian life questions mm -hmm. as though That's... if the idea were better in their heads, if they knew something better, they would be better yeah. uh, as a result. And that's something, even though we are talking about something we want to defend as an idea, the doctrine mm -hmm. of the atonement, we want, we're not saying that if we just get this right, all the behavior is right to right. We're denying yeah. that relationship in both directions. Yes, um, that's good. And, so in terms of the class, mm -hmm. here's the course description. While the ecumenical councils have clarified who the Savior is, namely that he is one person who is both fully divine and fully human, the ecumenical councils never clarified how Christ saves humanity, certainly in anything like a fulsome sense. The scriptures have much to say, and we will look at how the scriptures can inform our answer. However, we do not read the scriptures in a vacuum. We stand at the end of a history of interpretation. How have the Christians who have gone before us read these passages and understood how Christ saves humanity? This course will investigate the three primary trajectories that have been taken up in the Christian tradition and discuss their value and ability to capture the biblical insights discussed. 
In addition, there will be particular attention paid to the reformed approach to soteriological questions, along with the challenges that have been raised in response. Recent decades have indeed raised new concerns in soteriology, emphasizing how we are to understand God's relationship with violence and whether certain soteriologies lead to behaviors that are antithetical to the gospel. Feminist, womanist, Anabaptist authors and others have raised concerns that soteriologies requiring Jesus' death foster violence and passivity in the face of evil and are therefore deleterious. How should these concerns shape soteriology, if at all? Or if one holds to a confessional view, what kind of response should be forthcoming? Uh, I'd love to hear a little bit more, Ben, about what we might expect in this class and uh, something I'm very much looking forward to. Before you do so, let me just tell our audience uh, some really great news. And that is that for the first time, Greystone is going to make a full course, that is this particular course, a full course available to Greystone members only as a free registration situation. Now, this will be a class open to the public, as all of our courses have been. It is a full credit course for those in our certificate or degree programs. And so um, there are uh, there's a tuition schedule uh, for those in the full credit situation. And those who are not Greystone members can audit this class for $199, our standard audit rate. But if you are a Greystone member, you will have automatic and free access to this course as it is taught live. And it is going to be taught on Monday mornings, starting in uh, the very beginning of February, on Monday mornings for three hours at a time per week. And you can find out more about the schedule uh, by going to our website or emailing info at greystoneinstitute.org. But again, this is something we're going to make available to Greystone members as simply a benefit of their membership. You can join this class live and be in the class while Ben is leading us through this important material and these important questions. And uh, we're making this available to our Greystone members, not only to encourage others to consider the membership, which gives you access not just to this great class, but everything else, all of the other resources found at greystoneconnect.org and a range of other benefits that we offer from time to time, uh, but also to encourage uh, our friends to consider uh, whether uh, this might be a good day uh, for making your year-end gift to Greystone. If there's any way in which Greystone has been uh, of service to you in the past year, if you have found yourself recommending any of our resources or podcasts or other things to your friends and to your pastor and to others, uh, perhaps consider whether you might be able to help us a little bit with uh, our year-end needs as 2023 is rapidly now drawing to a close as I speak today. Uh, whether you hear this on one side or the other of 2023 and the start of 2024, we'd be very, very grateful uh, for your support. And uh, once again, this is a class I'm very pleased to say will be made available at no cost to Greystone members everywhere that you are as a benefit of your membership. Uh, so Ben, this is the course description. Uh, there are a range of themes and topics that are present in the syllabus that uh, we can look forward to seeing at least touched on, if not uh, covered uh, at some length. Uh, could you give us more of a sense of what we might expect in this course from you? Sure. The opening weeks, I plan to do just a bit more of the, the foundations, which everyone, all the views have some kind of biblical basis. And so we're going to spend some time just unpacking the relevant passages. So the sacrificial offerings in Leviticus, the covenant um, expectations, new Exodus stuff. And then we get into the gospels, you know, well, what's Jesus doing? What's he saying about his life and his ministry? So I will be Playing out at least my reading of the Heilsgeschichte of, of how does God save through history and kind of unpacking some of the things that I talked about in dissertation. But then uh, moving beyond that, even to New Testament reflection, how does Paul reflect on the death of Christ? And once once we get done with the biblical material, we'll, we'll have some foundations there. But then what's interesting is, is going through the church fathers and then to later thinkers and just understanding how they read those things. I, I think if you're coming from, say, like a modern evangelical background, you get used to certain passages being preached over and over. And so 
what's interesting is to read these fathers with with kind of fresh eyes that they they're seeing passages that we glaze over. For instance, Irenaeus sees the temptation of Christ as a huge part of this. Whereas I think most people are like, oh yeah, that's that's teaching me how to just avoid temptation. Where Irenaeus is like, no, no, he's undoing. Don't you understand? This is Adam and Eve. He's undoing what they did wrong. And he's hungry, it's food. Like he's seeing all these parallels that I think the modern readers just glance right over. So seeing what they saw as salvific, everyone agrees Christ saves us. In what way is he doing so? What what's the what's the mechanism there? That that's at work, and so we'll be going through some some of the main thinkers. Here's some of the the people: Irenaeus, Athanasius. Get to Anselm, and you transition to the satisfaction theory. Then you've got some. We'll talk about Abelard and the moral influence theory. We've got the reformers. Then Luther and Calvin. We'll spend some really good time on them. And then the last part of the class is going to be this is probably the last three or four weeks talking more about the modern questions. So I've got some interesting thinkers for us to look at, people like Jürgen Moltmann, um, talking about the atonement and violence questions. We'll be dealing with some of that. So trying to really do, here's the Bible, here's the historical conversation, and then ending on what's the conversation today. And so those are really the three movements of the course that I look forward to to being a part of with everybody who's going to join us. That sounds fantastic. And looking forward very much uh, to the class. Uh, as I'm sure our, our members will be looking forward to it as well. Uh, Greystone members, you will receive information about how to uh, receive the link uh, to the online meeting uh, of this class um, in the uh, usual ways that members receive newsletters and resources. So you can look for that. Um, but also note that you're very welcome to join the class uh, on site in Coriopolis, the Pittsburgh area, uh, in Pennsylvania. Uh, If you are relatively local and able to make it once a week uh, for this class, we'd love to see you on site as well. Mm -hmm. And um, you can also um, uh, provide your year-end support for Greystone by going to greystoneinstitute.org and going to the support page on the website. Um, One more thing, uh, Ben, before we we end our conversation today, and it's the thing I suggested at the beginning that we would be headed toward uh, eventually, and and I think now is the time to bring it up. I'd be very grateful for your your insights in into how this question can help Christians in conversations with each other, and maybe particularly pastors and their service uh, to their parishioners, their church members, when it comes to how our friends may themselves be concerned about the violence at work in the atonement in a world and in a time which is very, very concerned about violence in general and how to understand the relationship between those things. How will things you cover in your course or how have your own experiences in pastoral contexts, how do they inform how you come at this yourself and what you might recommend to, to others who are listening who either already have heard that question or that concern or or may soon hear it for themselves? So I'll say two things. The first was a question that was put to me at my dissertation defense. One of the, the readers said, well, what's at stake here for you? Like, well, what's, what does this matter to you? Like, why, why spend three years writing a, a paper on this? And it took me back at first, but then I said, you know what? The, the issue is really how do I deal with my own own sense of guilt? And I think this is this is what matters. I believe the human psychology is such that we realize we've done something wrong, that we're broken. And if the cross is really just, hey, stop doing bad things, then I still am stuck with who I am. That my mistakes, my failures, the the remorse that I have is still lingering on. And I'm wondering when someone's going to pull that out and say, look, Ben, you look nice, but I see all this crap. And so it's a question of where do we go with that? And I think the part of what's so compelling to me about the account that says the cross is a place where God judges sin, and my sin is judged there that it's gone. 
it, it's not just like lingering. It's not just like we're going to pretend it's not there, but like, no, God already said the worst about it. He said the truth about it and he took it on. I mean, if, if you take, so if we go back to the, the Trinity question, it's not just God, like make someone else who's innocent die for me. It's like, I'm going to take it on. The second person of the Trinity is going to step into this and he's going to bear it for us. And we're going to be now reconciled to each other. And so to know that there's not some other secret out there that's suddenly going to come up and sabotage this whole relationship with me and God, to know that eternity is, is our, like God's already seen the worst and he's dealt with it. He's destroyed it in the cross and resurrection to know that there's not a surprise waiting like, Oh no, what if the secret gets out? And then, you know, like you think about those couples where the, the movies where they have a fiance has got some deep secret, like, Oh no, when it comes out, right. The whole, the whole relationship's off. There's nothing like that waiting for us. God's already taken care of it. And so I think that account of the cross for me gives me rest that, that God has already taken care of it. So that's, I think, one thing that's just powerful for me. Like, what do we do with our own sense of guilt and shame? That That's there. If we if we poke and prod enough, I, I'm pretty sure we've all got something that's realizing it's not going away. So that's the first one. The second one is actually the, the violent stuff that you were talking about. And I think for, for pastors, we need to be careful about what we say when we say, take up your cross and follow me. Yes, that is the call of Christ. But I want to be cautious and going back to the question about women and violence and domestic abuse. Is every suffering following Christ in that sense? Like they were supposed to stay in that context. They're supposed to keep putting themselves in the place where they're being bruised and beaten. And that's where I think we need a more robust pastoral theology that that gives people. And one thing that I think is interesting about Bonhoeffer is he says, when Christ says, follow me, like you're, you'll be blessed because you're persecuted. It's like, this is for Christ's sake. Not just because like, hey, I went out, people made fun of me or they, they hurt me or someone hit me. It's suffering for Christ's sake. And so li- limiting the, the cross, or at least what it means to follow Christ, to take up your cross, to those things that are Christian commitments and not just to see every single suffering, whether it's at work or in the home, as therefore your cross to bear. I think we need a better, more robust more nuanced theology about that and helping people understand I'm following Jesus here. Let's say you stand up for the faith at work and you, and you lose your job. That would be a place of taking up your cross. But if you're also just not showing up for work and the boss is telling you to, to work more hours, that, that's not necessarily a, a Christian suffering. And so yes, yes. being able to parse those out for our people, I think would be very mm-hmm. helpful. Well, Ben, that's very helpful indeed. And, I'm grateful for your work in this area, and I'm grateful uh, to be able to look forward to the, the whole Greystone Network benefiting from it as well uh, in due course. So thank you very much for what you have done so far. Please keep after it, and we look forward to seeing you in class. All right, I'm looking forward to it as well. Thank you, Ben. Thank you for listening to this episode of Greystone Conversations. Remember that Greystone members enjoy access to the entire growing library Greystone lectures and events, including full course modules at greystoneconnect.org. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, spread the word, and consider supporting this podcast with the modest donation of just $1. Until next time, thank you for your support and for spending your time with us at Greystone. Greystone.